Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. As much as I enjoy talking with members of the trans community over the past six months, I also revel in the complex conversations of subject matter experts, those who have dedicated their life to one specific field of expertise. And today, I'm fortunate enough to sit down with someone who qualifies on both counts. She's an expert in the field of psychotherapy, as well as someone who has previously suffered from gender dysphoria herself. And that person is Stella O'Malley. Stella grew up in Ireland during the 1980s. And as far back as she could remember, she identified as a little boy. Not only did she act out the stereotypical behavior of a little boy, like roughhousing, playing with trucks instead of dolls, and competing in sports with her brothers, she even dressed like a little boy, even while attending her parochial school, which was no easy task back then. After she shared this story with me, I asked her if her parents were supportive of her gender shift, based on the fact that they let her dress as a boy in the immutable environment of her very strict school. And her answer was more than telling. She said, it was more like benign neglect than acceptance, which caused me to laugh out loud, somewhat inappropriately. But then Stella laughed too. Stella holds a BA in counseling and psychotherapy and a master's in cognitive behavioral therapy. She holds additional appointments in youth studies, psychometric testing, and gender identity counseling. She's also the author of three books on parenting and mental health, with her fourth book being published later on this year. She's a regular contributor to newspapers, broadcast television, podcasts, and she's a sought-after speaker and writer on the topic of gender dysphoria. In 2018, she published a documentary, Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk, which tackled the topic of gender dysphoria in children, including her own experience as someone who suffered from dysphoria herself. To be candid, I believe this was, in part, why her movie had such an effect on me and why I found it so powerful. As Susie Fay of the Financial Times said about Stella's film, it's where compassion meets controversy, and I couldn't agree more. In June of 2021, she co-founded GenSpec, a self-described gender-critical organization. To be clear, the term gender-critical means she is questioning the standard treatment approach of something called gender-affirming care as the solution to what ails our trans community. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce you to Miss Stella O'Malley. She's a gift to Ireland, the trans community, and someone I'm really glad to know. Enjoy. Well, Stella O'Malley, thank you so much for joining me on Truth 30 this morning. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for asking me on. Well, because as I mentioned off camera, you don't know me from Adam. So the fact that you decided to come on and talk about your story career as a psychotherapist is very appreciated by not only me, but our whole editorial board. And uh, the topic today, obviously, is uh, trans kids and the therapies in which we are uh, assigning to them. And so if you'll just kind of 
Uh, go with me for a second. One of the things that attracted me to you was an open letter you wrote to physicians and therapists um, from Genspect. And it's a pretty long letter, so I won't read the whole thing, but I will read some of the highlights for our audience to understand kind of your position on this. So we want our children to be affirmed as whole human beings, and we want them to be treated with evidence-based interventions, which ensure the benefits outweigh the risks. We are very concerned that the AAP is currently representing only one set of views on how best to help our children thrive, namely both social, names, pronouns, etc., and medical transition, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries, with the AAP refers to as affirmative care. Many of our children have received this care and are anything but thriving. Later on down you have, we now have several independent systemic reviews of evidence that shows that the benefits of these treatments are far from certain. Several countries have now acted on this new information, including Sweden, where it has been decided that hormonal treatments, i.e. puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, will not be initiated in gender dysphoric patients, excuse me, under the age of 16 for patients between the ages of 16 and 18 and it's been decided that treatment may only occur within the clinical trial set approved by the ethical review agency in sweden additionally the uk is undertaking a multi-year review of its gender transition program over concerns that harms outweigh the benefits and there's an interim report on that all this will be posted in my notes for my listeners Having a combative teenager who urgently insists on something or makes risky choices is not a new development for any parent or adolescent. What is new is that professionals to whom we have entrusted to our children, rather than safeguarding them from harm and helping heal parent-child rifts, they are encouraging our kids to act on their risky, impulsive decisions with irreversible consequences. So yeah, I think that there's other things in here that I could continue to read, but that Along with, I also should probably mention this, this is in your intro, but I want to repeat it for some of our listeners. You have a history of writing books specific to helping children, bully-proof kids, cotton wool kids, and your recent book, Fragile, Why We Feel Stressed, Anxious, and Overwhelmed, more than we ever have and what we can do about it. So, oh, also need to mention your documentary called Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk. It was a fantastic 90 minutes. I loved it. And by the way, I should mention this, and I'll stop talking, is that mm-hmm. in the documentary, you mentioned that you suffered from gender dysphoria as a child yourself. And I think from what I've gathered from my homework on you and your treatment and your approach is that I found that to be really powerful, not only in your writings, but in your interviews with the young men and women that you interviewed during your documentary. Why don't you start there with your own gender dysphoria? Yeah, it seems like the most appropriate place to start. Yeah. I I as a kid, like from as far back as I can go, probably around about 3, I very insistently and de- definitely decided that I should be a boy and that it wasn't right that I was a girl, that I was clearly a boy and that I'd be better as a boy and that the world need to get the world needed to come around to the fact that I'm with the boys. Right. And um this was like 70s, 80s Dublin. And, you know, very little attention was given to me about it. I just kind of was an eccentric kid. 
I was an unusual kid, odd kid. I remember a couple of people saying, I remember you as a kid. You are so strange. <laughs> so I, I was definitely somebody who stood out. I was very forceful in it. And I was very, funny enough, I was very dismissive of tomboys and other girls who wanted to be boys or whatever. I, I was like, they're just girlies. They're just trying. They're, they're only pretending. They're not like me. The real right. deal. Right. So I was I was very dismissive of, of you know, s- girls who tried to do it because I thought I was doing it. And that is, I now know because I'm a studied and I'm a psychotherapist, that is the magical thinking of a kid who thinks if I can think it, I can be it. Yeah. And, you know, my, my thoughts will shape the world. And life rolled on. The first few years were perfectly fine. And that's why I understand, you know, when you look at other kids like, you know, young Jazz Jennings and all that, I really understand. Yeah, of course, at that age, without a doubt, it's 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 very easy to fall in with it. And then there came a kind of a reckoning for myself. No, it's not going to come for everybody, but it came for me during puberty where I realized, oh, the adults have been pandering to me. They've just so it lasted years. So now we we rolled in, you know, seven years quite quickly there. How old were you when you felt it? How old were you recognized that you wanted to be a boy? Oh, three at the start. Three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Childhood. Okay. Really early. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I now know that is classic. I was classic childhood onset gender dysphoria. I had no idea, but now I know these. I was the classic case. Okay. It's around about three or four. And not only that, another real characteristic of this uh, condition is the whole town knows about it. Everybody knew me. Everybody knew that kid. You know what I mean? Wow. They're very out. So it's very, very different from the new teenage group that we're talking about, you know, these days. Yeah. This childhood onset and like Jess Jennings is another one. There's loads of them, loads of us. And, you know, some people transition and some people don't. But the thing is that generally there's some sort of kind of reckoning around puberty where there's a realization of just because I am brilliant at being a boy doesn't mean I am a boy. And puberty really slammed home to me mm-hmm. like a shock of reality that uh, nature was bigger than me, that I could think all I wanted. I could th- I could convince all the world. And still my body was growing and still I was getting breasts and, you know, there was all, you know, my body was completely changing. And it was like, it was panic inducing. It was what the hell is happening? Because this is, (laughs) this was not what I wanted at all. I just wanted it to stop and I wanted it to stop as fast as possible. It was frightening and terrible time and puberty was very, very hard for me. I now know that puberty is very hard for many people. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I don't, it was very, very hard for me. And then as I came out of puberty, as the years rolled on, I accepted myself. I realized that there was no other option but to accept who I was. And I became at one to myself. I'm now many years later, very happy that I'm a woman. I had kids. It's the best thing that I ever did was having kids. So I very much came around to my womanly state. Now, had I been given an option when I was younger, for puberty blockers, I would, you know, I would have sailed the seven seas to get those puberty blockers because I was so appalled right. at what was happening to my body. And had I been given the option of you can be a boy, you just all you need is basically this bit of medication, I would have taken it. Now, mm. yeah. Now, I 
I don't know. It's very, it's like sliding doors. It's very hard to know how would you be, you know what I mean, if this, you know what I mean? All I do know is I'm very, very happy that I am not living a medicalized body. I am not a man. I'm very glad that I'm a woman. I very I love being a woman. That's my own experience. And it's not the only experience. There's lots of other people who go through that puberty and who remain stuck in that thought. Now, because I've worked in psychotherapy for many years, I'm aware that Lots of people have lots of conditions and get stuck in that thought. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You can get stuck in lots of, you know, you can get stuck in, for example, a child can have OCD and I'm not saying it's the same condition, but it's an analogy and they can get stuck in OCD forever while another child can get OCD and they can move on from it. And what is the difference between those two children? I think that's the million dollar question that nobody has answered, let alone to say, why do some people with gender get stuck? I, I, I don't think we've figured out with anybody. Why do some move on? How can they move on? What is the difference? I think all the great thinkers for thousands of years have been trying to, to crack that particular nut and they haven't. So life rolled on and I, you know, I had my misspent youth and life went on and I became a psychotherapist in my thirties and, um, started writing books. And as you mentioned, the books I wrote a lot to do with mental health and parenting were my big focus and bullyproof kids and things like that. And then in 2017, I, I kind of noticed that there was a kind of a shooting, not a shooting rise, but a very suddenly very prominent in the media. There was a lot of talk about gender. And I, I always kept my eye on gender issues because I always thought that was a road I could have traveled. So I always found it very interesting you know, there's a few things in life that you look and think, God, that could have been me. So that was, yeah, yeah, that was something I kind of kept an eye on. And I remember in the 1990s when the T was added to the LGB, it wasn't LGB at the time, it was more like, you know, gay, lesbian, gay, lesbian, bisexual. It was different phrases, but I remember they added the T and I remember thinking, oh, that's a very different experience to be adding to sexual orientation. I remember thinking, that's funny. And I remember bringing it up to lots of people in pubs and stuff, because I'm in Ireland, and nobody, <laughs> nobody took up in it. They were like, like they kind of look at me slightly blankly, as in, "What are you talking about?" And I realized, oh, and I remember realizing my experience has given me some understanding that other people haven't really mm-hmm. thought about this very much. And then I also remember I stopped talking ever about having had that experience as a kid, because too many women said to me, "Oh yeah, I was like that too," and I was like, "Yeah, no, you weren't." <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you aren't. <laughs> what? No, you're like, no, you aren't. So yeah, yeah. The, sure one of the first are. questions that comes to me, since this did happen in the 70s before there was any yeah. social like acceptance, even exactly. how did your parents mm. deal with that? How I mean, they sound like they're supportive, mm. you know. They were, I, I would say it was more benign neglect. I don't think they gave it very okay. much. <laughs> okay. I don't think they gave it much focus. Do you know what I mean? I, I, you know, they just, it was yet another thing to contend with and they didn't give it very much. So it was pretty much ignored. It was okay. my own thing that I was doing right. and I did it, you know, so wh- whatever, you know, I was the only kid in the school. The girls wore skirts and the boys wore trousers and I wore the boys trousers. This is back when nobody did that. Right. Because like, nowadays that's no big deal at all. I know you don't have uniforms, but like everybody does that now, but nobody did it then. So that was a kind of a measure of the kind of, they just let me be. It was a very different world because nowadays if a kid kicks off, everybody looks at them and talks yeah. to them. Yeah, And yeah. that I would argue is actually putting a lot of burden 
on children, I, I feel it's a lot of responsibility when there's too much attention. Yeah. I think we've moved from child centered to child led. And so we're kind of asking Ooh. the child. Yeah, I feel we're asking yeah. the child, what do you think we should do? And I think it's a burden on them. And I don't think it's 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 going very well. I think what we need to do is like child centered was a great idea. Child led is a terrible idea because I have kids and I know that they would eat sweets and they would go to bed at late and they would do what they would be on their screens all the time. Yeah, no, I have that yeah. same belief because I have a 10 year old and an eight year old. And so I know. Exactly. I don't know how old your how old are your children. Fourteen and thirteen. Okay. So yeah, you've gone through this already. But that's you know a lot of the stuff that I read where they say children know what they want and children are sure of what they want. I was like, I don't know, man. And and again, I'm not a, a physician or a clinical therapist. I just for me as a parent, anecdotally, I witness what goes on in my children. And for me, if I if my ten or almost eleven year old came to me and said, "Daddy, I'm I'm other." And I want to go on these puberty blockers because I'm terrified of puberty. You know, I would be in a really rough place because I don't know how I would deal with that. I I think I would know what I would do, because, which is there's no way you're going on medication. But, you know, I've read so many stories now about parents just being thrown sideways mentally watching their children suffer. And so like, I can't, you know, speak adamantly on that. Let me ask you this. Because there were not puberty blockers available back then, and just to give my listeners a little history on that, historically, old school researchers like Richard uh, Richard Green and, and Ray Blanchard and, and those folks who did clinical studies in the 80s said that about 70 to 80% of the children they studied did actually rectify this problem during puberty. Uh, and a majority of those kids came out as homosexual. So the, a lot of the issues weren't necessarily that they felt like they were trans. It's that they were very confused about their sexuality. And there's also, the newer studies are talking specifically about kids that have comorbidities, anxiety, depression, cutting, eating disorders, uh, Asperger's, and autism. And there's all these different pieces and parts now. So the mix is much more complicated. And as you start to look at the new science specific to, there's no there's no longitudinal studies on this, but, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that the study specifically, if you're a nine-year-old, little boy, little girl that goes on puberty blockers, it's almost 100% that you graduate to cross-sex hormones. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I have all the stats because it's such a controversial world. I've really learned my numbers and my facts. Yeah. I have them at my fingertips. You're right. I just say them exactly. So if of every study ever taken place of children who've experienced what I experienced as a child, they say 61 to 98 percent of every study ever taken place, the child grows out of it, you know, depending on whether the study had 12 kids or 100 kids, right. or whatever. So they've they've roughed, they've rounded that into 80 okay. percent, you know, in and around 80 percent. And that's okay. the figure you said. And of of the children who do um, grow up to become, you know, happy in their own body, 70% are gay, lesbian or bisexual. Correct. So very, okay, are, so it's yeah. very correlated, you know what yeah. I mean? That they're very likely. I I am not gay, but most people are. And we saw that in life. You saw that in your own childhood. That girlish boy who ended up being gay. Like Yes, no surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we saw it. No we surprise. It. Now, there's a whole new thing going on. Because never before in the medical history have we seen large numbers of teenagers coming out with gender issues. 
So before um, about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there was no studies on teenagers because teenagers just didn't present. Right. Young children presented like me, three, four, five years old. They came and middle-aged males, which is a completely different cohort. They were the two strong groups and nowhere else did we see. We didn't see teenagers. We didn't see 20-something females. We didn't see any of that. Then suddenly, like a rocket, teenagers started presenting and they started presenting pretty much in high numbers from about 2012 onwards. We're about 10 years into it. And those teenagers are very unusual because unlike the children, which I was part of that group, that's the childhood onset as opposed to the teenage onset. Unlike the children, these teenagers have, like you said, very high comorbidities. So 48% of teenagers in the largest pediatric gender clinic in the world, the the JIDS at the Tavistock, 48% had autism. So like we're talking really, yeah, almost, really almost five out of 10. High. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking really high numbers of comorbidities and that would be um, ASD, autism is the biggie. ADHD is also very common. Anxiety, eating disorders. There's a, there's very certain kind of disorders that seem to link with gender dysphoria. And so you start thinking, hang on, this is a group, a new group. And they have vulnerabilities that have nothing to do with gender. And we really need to kind of look at this and think, where do they come from? Where have they come from? Why are they here? Why are the numbers so startlingly high? For example, 5,300% rise in female teenagers in the last decade in the UK. Like that's an astronomical Wow, it's fifty three hundred. So I've read everything from thirty three hundred to forty four hundred. Well, I tell it's... you what you've read. I tell you, I know what you've read. What you will have read is every year we come out with a new number because the yeah. last ten years, the last ten years. So the most recent. Oh my god! Okay, I haven't even seen that. All right. <laughs> so that's actually staggering because it brought up the average another thousand percent. Yeah. It's Holy just, shit! It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Yeah. And that's when you start looking at other things and you start realizing this is absolutely huge online. And there's a huge correlation between uh, as an extended period of time spent online and coming out with gender issues. They're very correlated. Lisa Lippman kind of pointed to it in 2018. She, she specifically said after an extended period spent online, they come out with gender issues. And again and again and again. Yeah. So suddenly you're like, okay, this is a new cohort. They're nothing like the childhood. They're they're secretive generally about their gender issues at the beginning, while the child is like just telling everybody. So they're a completely different group. And it's after a long time spent online. That's when it emerges. And you think, wow, th- this is a completely different almost condition. It certainly needs very different treatment. And I would like to bring in a nuanced approach. I would like to bring in an understanding of these kids are in deep distress and need help. And ultimately, in 2018, I did a film about it, which you mentioned. Thank you very much. Trans kids, it's time to talk. And it's a documentary. And I did it because I was concerned that could any of those girls be like me? Could Mm -hmm. any of those girls kind of come out of it and actually be happy to be a woman, happy with the breast, happy to, to to not have a medicalized life. And for that, I was told I was transphobic and they, you know, there was quite serious attempts to close down the film. That was a shocking experience. And I think more than anything, I think if it was just difficulties and doctors differing and, and different approaches, I would be 
upset and I'd be involved, but I wouldn't be as involved as I am. The thing that has made me so intense about it in the last few years has been the silencing of debate, that there's no room for discussion. Hence that letter, the open letter to the AAP, which was just saying, how about looking at psychotherapy? How about looking at other approaches? Why do we think that there's only one approach and that approach is early and aggressive uh, medication for young children, which will impair their fertility and impair their sexual function? It feels like using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And to be specific, gender affirming care, and again, you you know more than oh, I yeah. do. So <clears throat> the idea behind that phrase and specific set of treatments is that, and I've read specifically about therapists like yourself need to start at the conclusion, which goes back to what you said before. It's child led. So if the child says, yeah. I'm trans, I'm trans, and I am now going to transition from male to female and male, female yeah. to male, that's where you then begin, mm-hmm. as opposed to the psychotherapy that may actually be needed, specific to trauma, past eating disorders, autism, anything that could contribute as a comorbidity or covariate specific to clinical trial or to clinical treatment. That's the kind of stuff that, to your point, that's where the debate is shut down. I've been called the transphobe for the first, oh yeah, lots, because I've interviewed people like Dr. Helen Joyce and Julie Bindle and Lucy Massoud and, you know, these very powerful feminists who are standing up specifically as to the ideology and how it crosses over and tramples on women's rights. That's their big complaint. And so when you interview people of that, of that caliber, then people come back at me and say, you know, you are platforming these women who are transphobe, they're TERFs, well, they're the, that, that terrible term, um, trans-exclusionary radical feminist, right, which is another slur. But that, you know, you, you actually chronicled this in your documentary when you guys were trying to have a debate yeah. with like-kinded people, feminists, psychotherapists, physicians, clinicians in general, that wanted to open up the debate. And I think that's the scariest part for me. Even my wife has been worried about, you know, my presence on this because, you know, you get threatened and you get people tell you that, you know, you're a terrible person and you're a racist. And, and, you know, I watched that in your documentary, how those people were so rapidly attacking, physically coming after people in your, yeah, in your uh, symposium. And I was like, wow. And this is not new. Every single person I've interviewed, whether it's a therapist or a storied feminist or a journalist or anyone reporting on it, even Lisa Littman, who you mentioned, you know, she was in uh, Abigail Shearer's book, Irreversible Damage. And she came up with the acronym Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, I think, right? Yeah. And so that was something that was discussed online in the comment section of my interview with Helen Joyce, where people were very angry about that saying that this was nonsense and there's no such thing as rapid onset gender dysphoria. And that was where Lisa was, you know, mentioning numbers at the time that was 4,400% increase in teenage girls from 11 to 15 identifying as male. And that was the bigger shock to your point. It wasn't early onset and it wasn't autogynephilia, which was kind of normal with males over the age of 40 that decided, Hey, I've lived this whole life. You know, Bruce Jenner is an example, Caitlyn Jenner, excuse me. And, and so, Caitlin decided she was going to come out and be this person. You're like, okay, that's historical. But what's happened, and this is kind of for me, reporting on this, I learned so much specifically around contagion with young girls on subreddit and all the things around uh, any site that had these forums, 
specific to discussions around teenage girls. And Helen actually, Helen Joyce actually kind of compared it to, you know, 19th century hysterical laughing, anorexia nervosa, bulimia, cutting, all of these very contagious things that happen within females only. It's not anywhere near as popular with boys. And and that was being attacked. And I think to your point, it's Dr. Littman was very clear to say with her hypothesis around rapid onset gender dysphoria that it was not a medical term. She was just trying to understand what was happening mm-hmm. specific to these young women. And, you know, Dr. Erica Anderson, who is here, I live in San Francisco, and she is a renowned gender clinician here at UCSF who's been much like you. Gender-affirming care is a good thing sometimes. Mm -hmm. But what's happening now is we have to understand it. We can't can't sit back as adults and let children, I love this child-led, we can't let children lead. We just can't. I think Mm -hmm. that's the bigger issue. And that's why I was so impressed with your, your approach. Because you do think that that obviously there are trans kids, right? There are kids that believe this and they believe this for the rest of their life. And then there are a lot of people like yourself who transition out or move on or it's remedied in puberty. But how, how best do you think we can start to get closer together on this? How can we... Yeah, because you, you you are actually living that model, which is why I'm so impressed with am, your work. Yeah, I think how we can get closer together, I think, is by acknowledging that discussion is, is the only reasonable way for a civilized society to deal with conflict. And if you suppress discussion, even if it's discussion you're not happy with, if you suppress it, you're going to end up with toxic underground networks. Mm-hmm. And we would be better off. And we kind of established that, you know, suppression of of people's minds doesn't work. We'd kind of come to that conclusion, you know, some years ago, some decades ago. And we, we seem to have collectively forgotten about it in society. And now people are, are, are back into suppression. They want to suppress people's thoughts and people's uh, speech. And I think that's where we need to actually argue the point. And then once we can talk about it, once Mm. there's a kind of an acknowledgement of, you know, I would, for example, I'd love to speak with Erica Anderson because we wouldn't agree on everything. We'd agree on some things, we wouldn't agree on others. And that's how you come out with better treatment outcomes. Correct. Because she'll make me think and I'll make her think. And it would be kind of, oh, yeah, mm, she kind of got me in that. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. And that's how you progress. But if you're just told to stop speaking, what will happen? Because everybody, it's happened so many times in history is you will find your, your, your friends elsewhere. You will go secret. You will go toxic. And that's not good for society. So that's my, my feeling of the way out rather than focus on gender, focus on discussion. And there, I haven't come across a better way for society to handle conflict. We've seen war. We've seen suppression. It doesn't work. We right. all we've got left, unless somebody's got some something else in there. I, I can't think of it. All we've got is discussion, thought, disagreement, civilized debate, more discussion, more talk. And I suppose I saw it. I'm I'm from Ireland, and Ireland suffered like for many many years with the troubles, which was you know 
an awful lot of people died, an awful lot of an awful lot of um, grief and distress, a lot of violence, a lot of death, and a lot of censorship. So I grew mm-hmm. up with a lot of that. I've seen it. And then we had a peace process about 20 years ago. And it's been really difficult, really difficult as both sides have to compromise and everybody's furious because both sides are unhappy with the, <laughs> with the results. And that, that's what, that's society. Well, it? and that's a really good analogy because the Protestants and the Catholics in general fighting over metaphor and what Jesus said and what Jesus did. I'm a Catholic. I grew up Catholic. So I know that little debate. And one of my best friends lives up in Maherfeld and we've talked about this. Oh, really? Yes. So if I come out, I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> she's wonderful. But that is a really good example of, and this has also been postulated in the academic circle specific to this discussion, is that gender affirming care and trans ideology is a religion. Yeah. And that's why it's so powerful. It's not just that it's people's belief system. It's that's part of the reason the debates are so shut down. And that's part of the reason that I'm called names when I'm actually a trans activist by definition. I want <laughs> I want them as a group to be protected. I want to have legislation that governs that they don't get discriminated against in their employment status and that they are protected from harm. And that's where I'm coming from. And that's where Helen Joyce is coming from. And Julie Bindle and Lucy Masood and all the clinicians, even Carrie Mendoza, the doctor who referred us, she is of that belief as well. And so it's like nobody, the fact that you're shutting down people that want to help you, <laughs> it's just one of those things where you're like, we, that's where you guys aren't getting the joke. It's you're actually tailing people like Lucy Masood, who I recently had on the show, is a barrister in the UK and formerly a union rep for the fire brigade. And she represented trans people to get them time off for surgeries. These are adults. So time off for surgeries, treatments, doctor's appointments, that it didn't take their PTO, that they weren't discriminated against, that they could not lose their jobs. I mean, she went, led this charge for years. And then when she comes out on a lesbian dating site, and, and requests that she actually only dates biological females because she's a lesbian. She was called a turf and a trans, transphobic person and was banned from the site, by the way, permanently. It was called Hinge. And so we talked about this on our chat and I actually then pushed back on another discussion I was having with a progressive here in the United States who said that she is a turf. And I said, so you're saying as a trans activist, you don't want this person on your team? because she wants to date a lesbian, <laughs> a, a biological lesbian, by definition. And I have you know, plenty of lesbian and friends. What they're, that not, person answer? they're not a big fan of the penis, <laughs> just as a rule. I mean, that's, part, that's in part why they're lesbians. And so she, it, the person that I was debating on this said, she is the old school dinosaur feminists. That's what they call them. And so I'm like, okay, you guys, just to be clear though, you're not making headway as a group because I'm a left center liberal. So I'm trying to help. I have moderates, independent friends, friends that are small C conservatives and then really conservatives like my family. They're not even going to open up the talk. So like if you're pushing us away, yeah. <laughs> right? And trans activism away in general, then you are not helping your cause. And that's to your point. It's, it's brutal to watch. It's awful. It's awful that we're living 
I haven't almost been a civilized society. It's almost—it's <laughs> it's like we've we've gone back. We're like Victorian insofar as there's things you can't say and there's things yes. you can't think. There, you're not right. allowed. And um, it's it's amazing how a lot of young people have been brought up in this, and they're they're rolling with it. They're rolling with it like they're they're quite comfortable with censorship. They just think censorship's okay. Well, I, I think well, it's it's the it's the rot because when things get censored, then everything falls apart from that. But um, yeah, to to go back to your point about the uh, the name calling. It to me, it is egregious when yeah. when somebody says "at turf." I I stop in horror every single time because it's like you you don't call people names when you're beyond ten. If my child called somebody <laughs> a name, I would say right. no. Yeah, I would too. Their behavior, you do not call them a name because that that's that's <laughs> bad behavior. Do you know what I mean? Well, and historically, you've lost the argument. Once ad homonyms come into the play, right, you're done, logically. like. So like, once somebody says the word turf, I just go, oh, well, they've yeah. demeaned themselves. They've literally right. demeaned themselves. They have, they've started calling names to people, and they've, they've lost all sense of respect in, in, in my eyes. I, I can't respect somebody who does that. But it's become, it's like, you know, I remember years ago when I was at that, when I was doing the film and all the people were um, attacking the radical feminists that were having a debate about being women. That's all it was. All they wanted. It what wasn't anything crazy. Yeah. This was the dangerous question those yeah. terrible yeah. women were having. And I remember a woman saying, and I thought it was so insightful. She said, we went from witch to bitch to turf. And I thought, wow. Wow. Yeah. I remember looking, thinking, she's right. It's seamless that there's always been a word that puts women in their place and tells them, stop being difficult, you know, right. stop having opinions, stop be having views, just shut it. You know what I mean? That that has been a, a strong, strong thread through society. And then, you know, that's what's so interesting, why we all end up so interested in gender is you, suddenly you start looking at history and you realize, yeah, there's been a, a long, long, long time where women have been kept down and, you know, difficult women, opinionated women don't get very much respect. You know what I mean? The, you know, our, 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 we're not as easily respected as, as difficult men and difficult men can, you know, create great things and difficult women, you know, that's where, that's where greatness comes in many ways because it's the people who ask the questions and who say, hang on, what about this? And this isn't good enough. And yeah, very tedious to live with and live alongside all the time. <laughs> but <laughs> the world needs it. The world needs people to ask the hard questions. And society needs to support people who ask the hard questions. When you've got a good, let's say, corporation or organization, you need the person who says, but hang on, you need that person. They annoy you. Yes. You go like, yes. <laughs> but the, we need them. Well, it was the old school feminists that actually pushed back on the NHS on the Gender Recognition Act in 19, 2016, when they were actually saying, oh, all you need to do to change your actual sex on legal documents is sign I know. at the at the NHS itself. And and it was, you know, the likes of Julie well, Bindle and Julie Helen Bindle. Joyce. And Can yeah, I they came say, pushed well, against that. We have self-ID in Ireland. And so 
people can just sign and they do and they have uh, there there are issues with that but on another point that you raised that I wanted to bring up was you know I became during the film I became friendly with a, a psychotherapist called James Caspian and and like the person you described he was working with trans people since the 1980s he was working alongside in organizations for trans people from the 80s and literally decades of giving psychotherapy to trans people to help them in their way as mm. they were medically transitioning. And when these uh, new laws were coming in and the new policies were coming in, he was on all the boards because he was very highly thought of because he was such an ally for so many decades. And he took it upon himself because he because he was so immersed in this world to do some research on detransitioning. And this was in 2016. And he was told he couldn't do the research by his college, by his university, because uh, they said it's problematic, this this content. And he took them to court. He lost the court case, but he took them to court saying that's not the basis on which you stop academic uh, studies. That's just deeply inappropriate. He was right, but he lost his court case. And it's just a very sad story of somebody who worked for decades helping, for decades helping trans people and has now been shunned. There's too many examples of that. Dr. Zucker is another one. So oh, no. so that was an, an example where, and he, this young man was in your documentary, correct? James, yeah. Yeah. And he was great. And that's another thing too. That's the scarier part. Specifically this, I've, I had two people of your caliber with the same education here in San Francisco that agreed to come on the show. And then they watched my fr- other interviews and said I was a turf and that they didn't want me. They wouldn't give me, they, yeah, they just told me, no, you're a bad person. And I was like, all right, well, so how is it in, because here in America, and this is my, my research right now is anecdotal. I've probably interviewed 10 therapists offline because they won't do it on camera because they're worried about losing their business, right? So they're actually having their practice closed down, specific to the activism that we've talked about, right? It was very vitriolic. It's very serious. It's scary. And it's real. It's not a joke. You know, it's not hyperbole that trans activists are powerful as a group. How do you see your field? Where is it divided on that front? So you obviously are of the belief that there's a mixed here, specific to gender affirming care in certain circumstances. But puberty blockers, eh, you're kind of with Sweden on that front, right? Yeah. And then I'm not fan of puberty blockers. No, I, I from my own homework, even as a layperson, it there's just too many things that are coming up already. And there's not even longitudinal issues. There's bone density issues. The fact that you interrupt puberty is in a general sense. You don't have to be that educated to figure out that if you inter- interrupt your physiology, um, with a drug that was treated for castration and cancer in adults. <laughs> that seems a bit problematic for me. But where does your your group as a whole sit? You know, is it are you seeing that most therapists are let's just say caving to the okay to the mob? Or are they pushing back? Or how does that look to you? I just want to go at one thing and then I'll go back to that. Uh, first of all, sure. I just want to say, I want to remind people who are wondering about puberty blockers, don't forget puberty blockers block sexual development. <laughs> and so the, the, yes. the opportunity for a child between zero and 10 were asexual beings. And then between, Correct. you know, Carl, 
Pickard said, he's a lovely psychologist, he said, you know, adolescence is to break the spell of childhood. And between the period between 10 and 20, we become sexual beings. And that's awkward for everybody. We don't really know how to handle or navigate that. But that's what we do. Then at 20, we're sexual beings and life goes on. Now, puberty blockers stop that process. They stop any sexual awakening. So you're in your teenage years, you don't fancy. And you know the way young children, asexual children, pre-10, they're a bit squeamish and they find it all a bit icky. They're a bit creeped out by right. it. Puberty block children have the very same ooh. That okay. makes them, yeah, it makes them quite childlike. So all yeah. their peers are fancying people. There's hormones that, you know, that whole awakening of fancying everybody and all that, that huge part of teenage life yeah. is just zeroed. Zeroed for the kids. The implications psychologically for that. I just had to jump in on that. No, I'm glad you talked about that because that is a huge problem, even for me reporting on it, because the literature continues to be more and more deleterious the more I read. And that's exactly what it is. They don't know enough. And then they do know that it's causing osteoporosis in children. They do know that it does interrupt puberty. They're talking about micropenis and things like that. So if you're a boy, I tell you, as a boy, your penis doesn't grow. Yeah. Well, think about it. It can't grow because from the moment no. it stopped, your penis has been stopped growing yeah. until you stop taking puberty blockers. So it's literally you have if you've got an 11 year old penis because you're 11 years old. Yeah. And you get puberty blockers and you keep taking them until 13, 14, 15, 16. You still have your 11 year old's penis. Yes. And people don't like us speaking about that and they say we're being intrusive speaking about it i would argue they're being intrusive doing it we're only speaking about it because it's being done because this isn't to me it's a deeply and a very authoritarian way of coming in and blocking a sexual development of a person but to go to your other point which was a very interesting question which is around where are the therapists well i find again and again and again therapists are frozen they are suddenly in a political storm that they certainly didn't think they would be right. in. Most therapists, we like candles and we create good vibes. We're generally likable because we it's our job to be <laughs> <Yeah>. quite likable. <laughs> Although I'm on the sharp edge of that. <laughs> but we're supposed to be putting people at our ease. We're harmonious. These are the traits we bring. And suddenly, because of this extraordinary debate, we are being asked to be that little bit more um, assertive about what is therapy and what do we not do and what do we do do. And this is, I feel, very out of the comfort zone of most therapists. They tend to keep their head down. They tend to, frankly, because why do I know? Because I'm working, I work, I found a Genspect. I work with thousands of parents who are coming to me through various different organizations. Mm -hmm. Overwhelming numbers are in Genspect. And what they're all saying is, the therapist we had for the child, we already had them. They had autism. They had an eating disorder. So they already had, you know, a therapist. And as soon as gender walked in the door, they couldn't refer fast enough out to the gender clinics because the therapists don't want to touch gender. They're frightened of it. They're scared of it. They don't know what it's about. They don't like the political landscape. Right. They don't like the controversy. They don't like the fights. And they just get away. And what is the result of that? There is a massive worldwide, huge shortage of therapists who are willing to work in this. So if if I wanted to fill my books from now until 2035, I could fill them today like that. Right. 
Do you know what I mean? I don't because I'm doing different work like this because I'm like, this is a medical scandal that's unfolding. But I could very, very easily just day in, day out, just work with teenagers because that's the need. Not because I'm so brilliant, but because that is the need. It is phenomenal, the need, because nobody will touch it. So that's one way the therapists are dealing with it. They're not touching it. They're not. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah, like, no. Touch it. And I'm then out. there's a section who are very affirmative, who follow the affirmative rules. And what that is, the gender affirmative process, it's a four four step process where the therapist isn't a therapist, they're a facilitator. And it's quite clearly outlined in WPATH, which is the transgender health um, kind of guidelines. And they say from 2012 onwards, and which is very much coinciding with the spike in the numbers, yes. they recommended that therapists act as facilitators rather than therapists, and they facilitate the child's transition. And the child can be as young as, God. they're going to be shocked with this, and it's verifiable. But Di- Dr. Diane de Ehrensaft, who's kind of near where you are, I think, um, she's a big advocate for gender affirmative care. And she said as young as 18 months, 18 months, a child can make a gendered communication. The way they'd make that communication is by pulling out their barrettes or opening right. up their onesie to make it a skirt. This I've is read her stuff and it's just maddening. <laughs> I just can't. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. That, oh, that's a sign they pull out the... <laughs> Jesus Christ. I didn't go to school for 10 years, but I can at least... I have an amazing grasp of the obvious. 18-month-old <laughs> is not trying to figure out their gender by removing a beret or unzipping their onesie. I mean, Jesus Christ. Well done, Joey. You're astute. <laughs> um, yeah. So so as young as, so uh, there is no age minimum that a child can make this gendered communication. And this affirmative care process that you're interested in and I'm interested in has a very much a four steps process. It starts with social transition at any age. So the child, for example, quite commonly as young as four or five, which I would have been, Right. At school says, change my name, change my pronouns. Let me go to different toilets. Let me be considered, you know, the opposite sex. That's social transition, which has never happened in the history of mankind before. We've never changed pronouns before. So we don't know what is the impact of changing it. And we don't know what is the impact of changing it to the other children. We don't know if a child, you know, knew Lucy and now Lucy has become Liam and the pronouns has changed. How that impacts, for example, autistic kids, how does that impact anybody? I don't know. We don't know. This is a new experiment. So social transition is the first stage. Puberty blocks the second stage. Cross-sex hormones is the third stage. And uh, genital surgery, if they want it, is the fourth stage. And you can stop any of the stages or you can start any of the stages. That is affirmative care. Well, I would argue uh, when they say the word affirmative, affirmative. Of course, I'm affirmative. I'm a therapist. So of course, you affirm the strength of the person's beliefs. Of course, you kind of affirm that they what they want. Of course, you affirm the depth of their emotion. Of course you do. But that's just one small step in a therapeutic process. And you remember we talked about the difference between child-centered and child-led? Another kind of creep has happened with therapy, where we've moved from therapeutic process to our process, I think you say, to a therapeutic support. So we're just supposed to support everybody when they come in. And right. I'm like, that's not actually what we were talking about for these hundreds of years when we've been talking about psychology. We were talking about a process. We were talking about something that, you know, is quite difficult to go through that might you might be challenged. You might be asked questions that you would rather not. You might be confronted with your unconscious motivations, which could be quite 
you know, distressing. And that's going through the hard process that you come out stronger the other side. That's the grand plan. Therapeutic support is kind of like affirmation. It's like, yeah, you come in and I nod along. And I've seen, I, I when I first became a therapist, I became a therapist because, <laughs> believe it or not, I trailed through my 20s going to different therapists. And I used to think, this is awful. And then I go to the next person. I think, this is awful. <laughs> and I thought this many times in my 20s. And I remember thinking, like, they're just like a nodding dog. She was just nodding. I, I was looking at right. her. Like, I could say anything. And she's just going to nod. Right. Right. And I've, I've more to, I, I'm in trouble. And I don't need somebody to just nod along and tell me I'm great. I, I don't need that. I don't right. think that is respectful, to be honest. I, I can handle it if somebody, you know what I mean? So when I became, I became a therapist because I went one night to this thing and they talked about the difference between that nodding dog therapy and real therapeutic process. And I went, I'm in. And all I could think was, I couldn't be as bad as that lot. That right. crowd of clowns <laughs> that gave me therapy <laughs> for those years. And you know what? I, I am right. I'm not saying I'm great, but I was certainly better than the nodding dog. And that is what this is, I would argue, this is nodding dog. No matter what you say to me, you come in to me and I'll just nod. Yeah, yeah. I just right. facilitate everything you want. And I'm like, that's not respectful. And that could lead really vulnerable people into really scary places. And that's frightening. Well, and that's the detransitions you're dealing with, right? So you talk a lot about that in your film and your books. Specifically, if you are led from... You start with the conclusion as a therapist, you're not a therapist anymore. To your point, you're a facilitator. You're just facilitating this transition, which, as it turns out, is very problematic for many, for thousands of young children. So we as adults need to kind of step up and say, okay, this isn't okay. One of the big pushbacks, specifically from the progressives here in America, is that if you do not affirm immediately as a therapist you are now putting that child in danger of suicide and they talk to causal versus corollary which is a really big stickler with me because i lost a little brother to suicide and we've i've done a lot of homework on that and there is no causal data that i can find on suicide they re, they reference the williams institute and they talk about that specifically which is the ucla think tank and in that, page three, paragraph four, it says that our survey has not taken into consideration the status and health of the, of the patient, which we have known causes problems with our actual data. And you're like, okay, so that alone as a precursor to the report disqualifies the number one reference from every one of my progressive friends on causal versus corollary. As a therapist, do you think that there is causal connection to disallowing gender affirming care to a patient? Or is it nonsense to say that if you don't treat them with gender affirming care, they're going to kill themselves? Because to me, as a layperson, that is blackmail. And that's part of what they're as a group. And this is, you know, just my opinion now. I think it's wrong to say that every child who is maybe put into a psychotherapy session and trying to understand the trauma, the eating disorders, the Asperger's, the, the cutting, whatever the comorbidities or the covariates are, need to be discussed and for a, quite a while. It's not like, hey, it's, let's have one session and figure out that you're, you know, other. So I was a really rambling thing. What are your thoughts on that specific to the pushback from the progressives that it is suicidal to tell them otherwise? 
My thoughts are, I'm very glad you brought it up. I think it's probably the most important point that needs to be discussed. I think every suicide is a tragedy. And I think so I've I. been impacted in, in, in many ways with suicide in my own personal life. And because it's such a tragedy, because of the far reaching consequences of every single suicide, that we have to take it really seriously and make sure we know exactly what we're talking about. This this doesn't do for online surveys and people shooting their mouth off. This is way too serious a, mm-hmm. a, a, a subject matter. And so I, I look to the only you know studies, and I have really, really, really gone through the, the research on this one. And the two pieces of research that I've landed on that have given me a lot of cause for thought, pause for thought was the Swedish health authorities released, and I could send you the link. Yeah, <clears throat> they sent, they did a study and it was a really good study. What they did was they looked at people who had died by suicide and they looked at their conditions and they compared the conditions. So there was psychosis and substance disorder. There was mm-hmm. eating disorder. There was anxiety. There was autism. There was gender dysphoria. There was all of them. And you, we've plotted it on a graph so you can see visually where it comes out as such. And the really high ones are the ones that we would have thought were really high, which is substance disorder, personality disorder, anorexia, or, you know, various different ones like that are very high. And gender dysphoria is down where autism, anxiety. I'm not saying it's not an elevated risk, but they are more vulnerable to people who don't have autism or anxiety or gender dysphoria. But compared to other conditions, the, 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 the difference was quite stark. And so that's a really good, that was a 10-year study looking at deaths by suicide and conditions. It was a very, very, frankly, Swedish factual, that's the way to do it. Just let's look at the actual facts, not on who's thinking about it and who's talking about it and who's self-declared and and no, 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 because that's getting into all sorts of would-bes and it's too serious a subject. The second um, piece of data that I think is very interesting in this is the Tavistock, which is the largest paediatric gender clinic in the world. They assessed of the 15,000 people that have gone through their uh, books for 10 years and um, those 15,000 include those on waiting lists and include those who were getting treatment. So it's everybody. And of those, 15,004 died by suicide. And while that's four tragedies, and I'm I'm really sad that it happened, it is not a very high number in comparison to other conditions. Four deaths by suicide out of 15,000 children over a 10-year period. You, I don't know what the maths of that is, but it is not... It's an actual know, rounding error, statistically. What? It's an actual rounding error, statistically. Four out of fifteen thousand is a non-issue, and not to your point. Yeah. All those four, that, the, those four tragedies, you know. Yes, I recognize that, but statistically, yeah, four out of fifteen thousand is one of the. It's statistical, and it's a, it's a it's a rounding there. It's an anomaly, right? It doesn't yeah. factor into how we change behavior. Yeah, it can't. right. It can't. No, no, because it's not mathematically at all. And so those two facts are very straight facts. They're not about people talking about it. And then you find other people kind of take these online surveys and it's all about attempted and talking about it and suicidal ideation, which are very different issues than the actual tragedies. And it's like you are playing with really serious subject here and you don't do that 
You can't do that because it's too serious a subject. So that's one part of, of that. The second part is they've they've absolutely kind of weaponized the subject of suicide. Yes, for sure. It feels like a, a, a scurrilous thing to do. It's like there's certain lines in life that you're not meant to cross. And that is one of them, if you follow me, that you just don't do that. And if there's an issue, we, we need to discuss it. But and also, you know, the fact is suicide contagion is a real deal. You don't yep. talk about suicide to vulnerable people lightly because, you know what, in 1989, they brought in brilliant guidelines around suicide for the media and they were really good. And when Kurt Cobain died, I think it was 92, 93, by suicide, the media were brilliant. They knew what to do. They knew this is really hot. We need to be very, very careful here. And they were. And it continued on. They knew what they were doing. The guidelines were good. And as social media has taken off, we have crumbled. Those guidelines have just been disregarded. Yeah. So when Robin Williams died, a different cohort, but when he died, there was a huge contagion happened. The comedian yeah. Robin Williams. Why? Because the media were frankly reckless in the reporting. We know how to keep a lid as such on suicide. We know that this requires serious analysis and debate like you and I are having here. It's not quick. It's not, it's a serious, mm -hmm. proper kind of respect to the subject. And if you just throw out headlines and if you just throw out, you know what I mean, snappy clickbait issues around suicide, it is an absolutely reckless and damaging thing to do. And that's exactly what happened here because I remember Robin Williams uh, had su his suicide was in 2014. And I remember it was one of the first times I just went off on social media about it because of my little brother and dealing with this as a family and people calling him a coward and how could he do this to his family? And like, guys, you know, I said, if for those of you who haven't been part of this, you know, this, this, this wake of destruction um, as a family member or someone who knows someone intimately that has taken their own life, you need to sit this one out. You know, it's not okay to talk about it. And I was pretty a little more vocal than that, but like the yeah, idea was, yeah. well, it's, I don't take it lightly. And that's why it does bother me because I see it as a cudgel. I see it as a weapon from the progressives on this. And it's just not backed up in the longitudinal studies. To your point, I read that Swedish study and I've read the Tavistock studies because of Helen and Julie and all my friends in, in Britain now. And I understand that this is not a isolated issue. Part of our problem in America is that we have the inability as a group to zoom the fuck out. We have no idea. Everything is just happening here. You're like, no, this is happening in Britain and Sweden and the Scandinavian countries in general, Australia. I have clinicians that I've interviewed all over the world who are like sending me notes. This senator said this, will you interview her globally? So when you look at this kind of data and then you look at our little Williams study here in the United States that everyone references, you're like, first of all, that study's a joke. Because yes. it goes exactly what you're talking about. Well, I felt suicidal and then it did it. You know, like, okay, that's not the point. You didn't even interview people that off themselves. You didn't talk to anybody in that family. So this, ah, so yeah, it drives me crazy. And yeah. that's the bigger issue. This is a global issue. This isn't isolated to us and our boundaries here in the United States. And so that's why it's so important for me to have women like you on the show, because you're pointing out things that I, as a layperson, want I want to validate 
which you just did. Those are the studies that I looked at that I thought were powerful as well. And and to your point, with the 5,300%, there's a bigger increase in 11 to 15-year-old girls. And the fact that we're not having this discussion is shocking to me as a group. Because thank God I don't have a 12-year-old girl right now. I'd be terrified that she would then jump into the wrong camp or get onto a subreddit platform or get into some you know online forum that says, oh, if you take hormones, specifically testosterone, all your depression goes away. Because that's what I've read. A lot of these forums are just people feeding the machine, right? Feeding the monster of this, you know, this child's insecurity or this child's typical, and I don't want to say typical, but most kids suffer as they're going through puberty. And and junior high is probably 50 times as, as anxious provoking as it was when I was in school because we didn't have this platform, you know, the social platform where you can see everyone's you know, lifestyle and everything you do is, is you're in a fishbowl, right? And so obviously to your, to some of the stuff you reference in your books, it's, that's why we're overwhelmed with stress and anxiety as children today. And this isn't helping. This isn't helping for us as adults to sit back on the sidelines. Even to your mention, the therapists are scared and I actually don't blame them because I've made the joke, you know, that I have a small media company. I have journalists that work side by side with that we're trying to report on these issues and people can't shut us down. You know, if anyone comes at us, we'll just write about it. <laughs> so it's like, you want to, you want to shut us down? We'll, write well, I, I, I'm also 55 years old and, and I was, I spent 20, 20 years in the media world. You know, I was, I understand how media works. Right. And so it's just one of those things now where historically I got paid because, you know, if you look at stories, you have engagement by enragement. You know, we know that works to polarize stories. Hmm. We know that any type of narrative specifically on that front needs to be propagated, needs to be, you know, it needs to be sequential, it needs to be repeated, <laughs> and it needs to be simple. All of those things, right? That's just one of those things where how media has taken this and run with it. And now the media is not our friend in this case either. It's actually taking all of these gender affirming care specialists propagating them up as this is it this is the this is our solution for all of these tragic children that are dealing with this problem and then anything you say against that narrative is punished and that's why the therapists are not coming forward that's why they're not they're either not taking the cases at all or when they do take them they just kind of like you said they they act as a facilitator and those are very different situations and i think it's going to harm millions of kids if we continue on this front. It really is. I'm part of getagenderexploratory.com and it's the idea is we have an approach where we, we we offer gender exploratory therapy. You know what I mean? And it's an association of therapists who are offering, yeah, sure we'll affirm, but we'll also give you an exploratory process. It's yeah. not, you know, we will give you the the gift of therapy because it is a gift and it 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 does take time. And it's not a case of me just nodding along to you. Um yeah, the, the, there was something you said there that kind of provoked my my thought. I can't think what it was. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I, I kind of rambled there. But I think that the problem for me, specifically where I was talking about pushing back, when I get pushed back on. Yeah, that's yeah, what go I was going to say. You yeah. are unusual because you're, you're left of center as I am, liberal left, you know. Yeah. And the the media and the liberal left, they got into journalism to be truth tellers, to break mm -hmm. stories, to speak truth to power, to kind of 
to be the ones who would who would um lift up you know the 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 monster under the rug and look yeah. at it shine a light in the dark places why have they collectively just shrunk away and i've studied this so much because i'm so horrified because it 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 has given me a, a framework of why history has happened again and again and again and mm-hmm. people said how did it happen how did it happen and now i'm living the how did it happen? I could see it happening. And it makes me, I have landed, I'll be interested where you've landed, but I've landed in, everybody says, oh, they're afraid for their jobs. I'm like, yeah, really? Well, I think they're afraid of, of being unpopular. I think they're afraid of public shaming. And I think public shaming has kept society in check for thousands of years. It's the strongest tool we have, yeah. which is the the kind of the approval of society or the shunning from society. And the, the liberal left have been absolutely lily-livered. They have been absolutely (laughs) shockingly, and lots of them know, because they've contacted me. They know, and they bite their lip, and they say they can't, and they say they're afraid for their job. And I'm like thinking, these I'm talking about journalists I know, let's say in Ireland or the UK, and I'm looking and thinking, you're in the top 5% privileged positions in your country, and you're saying you're afraid for your job? Well, why are you a journalist if, if if you can't? you know, report if if you're afraid to. So then you'll you'll report on all the safe and oh, they all pretend to be so brave and I'll say what's, you know what I mean? But they won't talk about this. They won't go near no. it. And no. popularity. I don't think it's their job. I think it's unpopularity. I agree. And I think that part of that shaming has a lot to do even with other, like gender affirming care is just another name for harm reduction with drugs. So in our country, my brother who was an addict and an alcoholic, I watched him go through this harm reduction where they'd give him drugs and they would give him a place to do it and they would tell him he's going to be okay just so he would be clean. And they would even give him money and stipends. And we do that here in San Francisco, right? We have open air drug markets. We actually just voted out our DA because of this policy. And we know from, you know, geographic studies specific to you know, Amsterdam and Portugal and other areas, how important shame was as a culture to be a drug addict, right? There, if there's no shame and shooting up on the street and not being arrested because it's, well, they're victims and we need to take care of, care of them. There's a lot going on there. There's some crossover, you know, that I can see. Tell me that. I'm very interested. Well, what, the, what happens the, if there's no shame in being a drug addict? Yeah, too? in the sense of you tell a 11-year-old, a 12-year-old that, who is suffering from anorexia. If you affirm that and say, you're fine, just like you are. Yeah. That's it's the same thing as telling a drug addict, you're fine. And you shouldn't feel shame for doing drugs. And you shouldn't feel bad that you're doing this to yourself. And understanding the self-loathing that comes with drug addiction or alcoholism, that's what you have to get to the bottom of. You can't just say, oh, they're victims. Well, yeah, fine. But then you got to treat the victimhood. You got to treat that piece, right? It's, it's very similar I, to me. We lost ourselves. I know. We have. And, and telling a drug addict, it's not okay. <laughs> you are ruining yourself and you're hurting yeah. your family in the process. And that's not okay. But I did it. But I'm a victim. I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying yeah. get get some fucking therapy. Figure yourself out. And yes, shame is part of your life. You should be ashamed (laughs) for laying on the street and defecating on yourself after you shoot up, right? I mean, that's not okay. 
And by the way, th- that amount of self-loathing, it just grows exponentially. And I watched it with my little brother. I watched it with all his addict friends. I watched it in and out of clinics. I went to all these clinics. I talked to the, the hospice care people. I talked to the, the counselors, most of which were ex-addicts. And they said the same thing. I'm like, do you think this is working? Giving them drugs? And did they? No. But the same thing, like, I don't, and, and, and I, I genuinely believed a lot of these young folks is that that's, this was their first job in 10 years, probably. And so they I, didn't want to lose it, you know? And also they'd kind of crept into therapeutic support. So we're just, yeah. supporting, we're supporting them. And it's like, yeah, okay. That's kind of very dangerous. If I thought I was actually getting into something that was going to help me. And it turned out five years in, I was only ever going to be supported in whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. That's that's really I think it's it's really on 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 uncharted territory. We've slipped into this therapeutic support without even thinking of it. Yeah, and that's and it's not helping. No, it's not helping. It's the walls. You know, you tell a little kid he can play inside the the walls of your yard. Yeah, do not go outside this border. You we good? We good? They're like yeah, "Yeah." Yeah. and they're thrilled because they needed the boundaries. Right yeah. now they can just yape out and be kids in the yard, but they like the constructs. And I think it's the same thing with addicts, you know, just in my own experience, my little brother watching him suffer through it for decades it, and all of his friends. If there's boundaries, if someone tells you, no, <laughs> you can't do that. If you're in court and they say, look, we're not going to let you out. You do this again. We're going to throw you in jail. Oh, so you have two choices right now. You're going to rehab for a year. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to jail because you keep breaking the law. <laughs> oh, well, I'll take jail. Great. Go to jail. Or we want to help you over here. Door A, door B. What? Take take your pick, dude. We're not doing that. You're a victim. We're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure we, you know, because of that. It's just, it's a flawed methodology. And I see a lot of similarities, probably not enough to really throw this out there, but I see a lot of similarities between the harm reduction policies that my little brother grew up with in the drug-addled world that he surrounded himself with. And the same thing we're happening with our, these young children is that everything's okay. You're a victim. You feel transphobic. You feel like you're trans because you're nine and all nine-year-olds know exactly what they want to do for the rest of their lives. I mean, that's absolutely insane to believe that. I mean, you know, don't let them choose their college courses at that age. But still in booster seats. This is ridiculous. We don't let them choose anything because to your point, they'd be on pads all day. They'd eat sugar until they threw up because I've watched my little boy do that during Halloween. Oh, dad, I don't feel good. Blah. I'm like, okay, how much did you eat, dude? Well, a lot. I'm like, does it feel good? No. I'm like, remember this, man. This is when we tell you not to eat so much sugar. This is what eight-year-old, nine-year-old kids do. It's not like, oh, let's let you choose a lifelong path of medicalization. That's That's insane. That's going back to the almost religious aspect of, of this world. It is a religion. It feels like it's a religion. It's certainly a, a belief system. And um, it kind of thinks that the children, it's like, yeah, I'm an Irish Catholic, and it's like, you know, the children have, you know, they're next to God. They they have this religion. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. No, they <laughs> this don't. idea, like, they have this secret, like, because they're children, they have pure thought, and it if I just listen to the children, we'll be okay. And it's like, right. that's farcical. That's silly. It's it it's is. not well thought out. They just listen to the kids. And I find that's yet another phrase that I just think, why why are they saying just listen to the kids? Because frankly, kids are not running the world, thank God. Right. <laughs> because, 
<laughs> because they're kids. Because they're, it'd be <laughs> it'd be the Charlie Chocolate the Chocolate Factory. It's it's like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's what they would do. It it's not. We can't let kids rule the world for that reason. And you can't let them make long term health decisions based on how they feel at nine years old. I just and it weighs heavily on them. It, of course, I've it does. So many detransitioners. You brought them up, and yeah, I, I let's found- end on that. Yeah, it weighs very heavily on them. Even the, the ones who were pediatric transitions, who transitioned as a child, they say things like, I got the school policy changed. And I feel really bad about that because I know there's a lot of kids who've gone through it. And I'm like, you shouldn't have been listened to. You were 12. Right. But they feel bad about their legacy. And they were listened to. And I, I would argue it put a burden on them. And then more seriously, they got puberty blockers, they got mastectomies, they ended up with, with hair on their Ugh. bodies, hair on their on their face, and a, a kind of, you know, di- a different presenting. Cracked voice. Back, yeah, the, the male voice is yeah. the one that seems to be it, the one that is the hardest. It never comes back, right? I mean, that's it. It doesn't seem to, no. And it's yeah. really hard. It's like... <laughs> could almost present as as you know an androgynous female you've mastectomy you might look very male but you can you know there's lots of male looking women but the voice comes out and it's right. like it 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 everybody falls in with presuming that they're a male and so they're living in this half world where the people who know them know that they're female but the the world where you you know getting the the petrol for the car or going to the shop yeah. they all presume you're a sir and then going to the toilets, for example, feels like an emotional, frightening yep. thing to do. Everything is fraught. And I think they're living, I think that that story is getting more and more attention these days. And like there's, you know, if you look at, you know, Reddit, subtrans Reddit for, for a detransitioner, you'll see like there's 36,000 uh, members on that Reddit. And that's the one you referenced in your open letter, right? The recently published peer review. Yeah. 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 And you, you only have to take 20 minutes, get yourself a copy, look at it for 20 minutes and you'll go, oh, my God, everything has to stop. These kids are way too vulnerable. They've been through way too much and they're 22. They're, right. The stories are frightening. Just to finish, Jen Speck did a, a D-Trans Awareness Day on March the 12th and we did this webinar where we just platformed detransitioners who just told their stories. And it was so powerful. Story after story after story. And every one of them were vulnerable. Every single one of them were lost, unhappy. They thought the most alluring idea in the world is you can be a different person. You don't have to be that person filled with self-loathing and filled with right. hurt and harm. You can be somebody fun and light and you'll have a different name and nobody will be able to refer to that awful old you. Right. And when they went through it, they found out they couldn't get away from themselves. They're still the same person. They just look differently. Well, that's that's just from my own years of therapy. That is, you can't get away from yourself. It doesn't matter where you go. Even if you try to change yourself biologically, it's not going to change who John you Cabot's are. In. John Cabot's in the mindfulness guru. He's, he wrote a book called Wherever You Go, There You Are. There you are. <laughs> We're stuck. We're stuck. You're stuck with you and I'm stuck with me. And you just kind of got to, you've got to learn to accept that that's the fundamental limitation in life. Yes. Can you send me that link to that talk? Did you, is that a Zoom? Oh yeah, the webinar, I will. Yes, I'll send it please. Because I'll put that in my notes when I publish this talk. Watching. And we've yeah. broken it down into segments because it's hours and hours and we've broken it down, but it's it's just powerful. Oh yeah, really I, I'd love to watch that. 
because that's that's an example of you know that's actually where Helen Joyce said she was powered by her interviews with detransitioners. And then to your point earlier about journalists um, Mm -hmm. worrying about losing their job, people came after her, even including she was an executive editor at The Economist. This is not like an average journalist. She's she's (laughs) one of the top journalists in Britain, and. People were telling her, this is going to be terrible for your career. You should probably not do this. And she got more fired up because any really good journalist, and she said this, any really good journalist should get more fired up when you're not supposed to write about it. That's the idea behind it. And that means there's something there. Yeah, it turns out there isn't very many real journalists. No. That has been a shock. I thought they would have been braver than they are. I really would have. I was hoping so too, but I will let you go because we said we'd do an hour way over that. So I appreciate (laughs) it. I really enjoyed that talk. So thank you very much for having me on. It was was such a pleasure. And again, I I say this to everyone with sincerity because I've done enough homework on you to thank you for everything you've done. Your documentary was wonderful. It was compassionate. It was empathetic. It was, you understand these folks. And so that was wonderful to watch. Your books, I haven't gotten through all of them, which I will. And then... (laughs) I want to bring you back possibly to talk about just kids in general and mental I mean, health because coming out on teenagers. I'll, I'll, we'll perfect. Then let me know that. Back. Let me read that first. And yeah. then, then we, cause I actually, that's the most fascinating piece. And then personally I have a little boy who's about to turn okay. 11. So like, it would be good for me to see all of that. And again, thank you for all of this because people like yourself are very important uh, historically, but even more so today with pushing back on this narrative, not that you're being mean-spirited in. And I think that's also what I was enjoyed most about your work is that you're embracing both sides. You're trying to foster debate, which is necessary for us to actually find a remedy for all of these kids that are in so much pain. So thanks again for everything you're doing, Sal. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank all you right, very much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.